to say good evening to everyone. Very thankful to be here this evening to talk with God's people as we come together to press together, to study together. We are here because there's a great cry for the Spirit of God to fall afresh on us. Amen? All right. We're going to be talking about that this evening. Now, if you were looking at your bulletins, you would see that there's a different title connected to the message that I'd be sharing with you, but that is not the title that uh, God has given to me this evening. So I'll be sharing that with you shortly. But nevertheless, we're going to go ahead and pause for a word of prayer because we have much to share and little time to do it. So as much as you're able to, I'd like to invite you, if you would, to please kneel with me so that we can approach the Lord in prayer at this time. Our Father in heaven, we come before you, dear God, in holy convocation because it is our earnest desire that we would indeed receive the outpouring of thy Holy Spirit. Father, there are many things that you have commissioned to your church to get done in these very final moments of earth's history. And Lord, we recognize that it cannot be done by might or simply by power, but it's only going to be by your spirit, saith the Lord. And so we come committing ourselves, asking you first to forgive us of our sins and that you'll also cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that you'll help us to even behold Jesus. For we trust that by beholding him, we shall become changed into the same image. Father, I commit myself into your hands. May you please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And I thank you that you have heard this prayer, and I trust that you have answered it. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I am not sure how my friends pretty much from this row onward are going to be able to see the screen. So I guess you'll just trust me to read it, and that's all right. But nevertheless, we're going to go ahead and begin. Now, we're calling unto the Lord to ask him to fall afresh on us to pour out his Holy Spirit upon our hearts and our lives because we know, indeed, we can't do anything without Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. And the way that Christ is received in the heart is by his Spirit. Amen? Now, there are many reasons why individuals ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They want to accomplish certain things. They want to overcome certain things. There are many various reasons. But one thing I want to show you that I would dare to say is the ultimate goal of receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is found in Acts chapter 1. Turn there with me to the book of Acts chapter 1 and we're going to look at the highest heights of why God is giving his spirit to his people and why his people should be pleading and crying out for the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Now I want you to notice what the Bible says here as we consider verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Acts 1:8, but ye shall receive what? Power. It says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you and ye shall be what? Witnesses. Witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The great purpose of God pouring out his spirit upon us is so that we may be effective witnesses to share his truth with others so the world can finally be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible, wants to, the Bible is encouraging us that we are to receive the outpouring of God's Spirit so that we may be able to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, understanding that, this is key. 
When you ask for something, remember what the Bible says in Proverbs 4, 7. The Bible says, therefore, get wisdom, but with all thy getting, get what? Understanding. So while you're asking for one thing, you want to understand why you're asking for it. We are asking for the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit so that we may be the effective witnesses that he has called us to be to this world. That's the great gospel commission. Amen. 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 Now, understanding that, let's move to point two. Point two is this. Because of the fact that God wants us to do this, there's a great witnessing effect that the Bible tells us about in Revelation, the 18th chapter. Go there with me now. Revelation, the 18th chapter. Perhaps this would be the great highest of the highest experiences of the power and demonstration of the spirit of God, allowing us to be effective witnesses to the world. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation. And we're turning to chapter 18. Now, when we get to Revelation 18, please say amen. Amen. In Revelation, the 18th chapter, we're starting at verse one. I want you to notice what the Bible says here. The Bible says in Revelation 18, verse one. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a, a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And it goes on to say, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her who? My people come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now, the Bible tells us, number one, when we ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he is going to come to us and he wants to endow upon us power so that we could be what? Witnesses. Now, in Revelation 18, we see God demonstrating this power in a marked manner through the cry, the loud cry of the second angel's message repeated with greater force as it tells all of God's people to come out of what? Babylon. Amen. Now, this is what is termed as a loud cry. It's an angel with a strong voice, a loud cry. Now, here's the thing. If we want to receive the refreshing, if we want to receive the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit so that we may do a work that is designed to finish the work, Christ finishing a work within us so that he can work in us and through us to finish the work in the world. If this is our great goal, if this is what we're seeking to do, there is something imperative that you and I need to understand. You saw the quote earlier. I want you to look at this. It says every what? Every truly converted soul, it says, will be intensely desirous to bring others from the darkness of error into the marvelous light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The great outpouring of the spirit of God, which lightens the whole earth with his glory. Did we not just read that? All right. It says will not come until we have an enlightened people that know by what experience what it means to be laborers together with God. When we have entire wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of his spirit without measure. Notice, but this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. It says God cannot pour out his spirit when selfishness and self-indulgence are so manifest. So therefore, if we really want 
the Spirit of God to fall afresh on us. We must understand that there's going to be a role that we're going to have to play as it relates to this ideology called soul winning. Amen? We are going to have to embrace the ideology of soul winning if we really want to be prepared to receive the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Amen? All right. Now, question. Are we not living in a time where revival and reformation is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs? Yes? Yes, we are. Now, there are some who would believe that revival and reformation, some who believe that revival and reformation is independent of doing a soul winning work. In other words, there are some people who believe that what I need to do is pray more. And do we need to pray more? Amen. Some people say, well, I need to study more. Do we need to study more? Amen. Some people say I need to go ahead and do various different things. But very few individuals, when they think about revival and reformation, And that being able to take place in our lives and in our hearts so that we may fulfill the great gospel commission. There are very few people who connect the work of soul saving in the process of bringing about revival and reformation. Now, does the Bible teach that when individuals go about seeking souls, that it does something for them to make them more spiritual and more closely connected to Jesus? Amen. Go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Let's notice Isaiah, the 58th chapter. Watch this now. In Isaiah, the 58th chapter, let's notice what the Bible says here. The question is, does the work of soul winning does something for me personally as it relates to the experience of revival and reformation? Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 58. In Isaiah, the 58th chapter, we're going to consider just verses six to eight. We can go further, but for time's sake, I'm just going to cut it between verses six to eight. Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 58, starting at verse six. It says, is not this the fast that I've chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. This is a different kind of fast than what some people are used to. Then it says in verse seven, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked that thou cover him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Now. Is this not a soul winning work that has been described thus far in these two verses? Yes, it is. But did you notice now? I want you to catch this. What's the first word in the next verse? Then. Now, what's what does then mean? As a result of this. So something's going to happen when individuals get out of selfishness and self-indulgence and they begin to reach out towards others. Notice what verse eight says. It says, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. And if anybody in here is sick, notice what will happen to you. It says, and thine health shall spring forth. How? Speedily. It says, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. So the Bible says that there is an effect that happens to you and I when we get out of our own selfishness, out of our own self-indulgences, and we begin to reach out towards others and seek to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Now watch this. Did you notice that the verse had nothing to say about how many people joined the church? I didn't see anything like that in the verse, did I? Did you? So in other words, it's not so much that the revival and reformation comes in as a result of numbers that come in. God says it is in the work that something happens to you. 
God says, leave the results with me. But it's in the work, it's in the effort that God says, I designed that it is to do something for you. But here's the next question. What exactly is soul winning? In other words, yes, okay, we can see thus far, soul winning is a very necessary effort. Soul winning is something that we should be very much involved in. But the next question is, well, how do we really look at the idea of soul winning? In other words, what does a soul saved even look like? Notice what the Bible says in James chapter 5. Now, I want you to catch this because this is a beautiful lesson that we're going to look at right here. James chapter 5 now. In James, the fifth chapter, while God definitely is encouraging us and showing us that in order to receive the great refreshing, we must get to work. That's going to play a part amongst all the other things that we do in the name of, quote unquote, revival and reformation. But now watch this. James chapter five. What really is soul winning? Anyhow, let's look at this. James five, James chapter five. And we're going to look at verse 20 in James chapter five and verse 20. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, in the eyes of God, we just read a concept or an idea of what makes up soul winning. The Bible says that when a sinner is converted from the error of their ways, it says that that is a soul that has been saved. Are you following? Now, question, are there sinners in the church? Yes. yes. Are there sinners in the world? Yes. So therefore, does the Bible differentiate or is it the same rule if it's a sinner that was in the error of their ways and they then brought into the light? It's the same rule. So that means that if we find brethren that are even in the church who are walking in erroneous doctrines, Erroneous teachings, erroneous lifestyle, and one of God's messengers reaches those individuals and helps bring the power of present truth to their minds and redirects their path where they were one minute walking in error and now they're walking in light. And that individual turns from the errors of their ways. In the eyes of heaven, is that a soul one? Amen. And so it is that when we go into the world, If there are those who know not Jesus and we show them the errors of their ways that we obviously and that individual turns from their sins. Is that not a soul that is one? So that means that souls can be saved even though they have membership on the books. Amen. 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 Now. If God wants us to get involved in evangelism. And he wants us to get involved in the soul saving work, the soul winning business, because he says not only does it bring those who know me not to me, but it also brings you to me. Here's the next question. What's the method of evangelism that we should use? Now, that becomes a very important question. What's the method of evangelism we should use? Because there are certain forms of evangelism that could bring about one fruit. And there's another form of evangelism that could bring about a whole different fruit. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Go to Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, I want you to look at a statement here about evangelistic work. But I want you to notice the fruit that comes from this type of evangelistic work. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 23. Notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 15. Matthew chapter 23, and now we're looking at verse 15. 
The Bible says in Matthew 23 and verse 15, here's what it says. It says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And what are they called? Hypocrites. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why were they hypocrites? It says, for ye come past sea and land to make one proselyte. In other words, they were doing a soul winning work. It says, you come past sea and land to make one proselyte. But look at what happens when he does, when they win him. It says, to make one proselyte. But then it says, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. That must have been some bad evangelism because that's definitely some bad fruit. Are you following? So therefore, it, it, it would behoove us then to get out of the mindset that simply because people come in, everything's all right. Just because we got numbers in means you did a great job. It could be that we just baptized the mixed multitude and all they're going to do is lead Israel to become twofold more the child of hell than themselves. You see, the way God measures a minister is not just simply by how many people came in. Notice, inspiration says this, the conversion of sinners and that means there's a connection. It says the conversion of sinners and their sanctification through the truth is the what? strongest proof a minister can have that God has called him to the ministry. So it's a twofold. It is not just simply the fact that the person has been converted to the to the church or come come into the truth. But it says there's sanctification. There's a change in their life. They're growing in grace. Look at how it finishes. The evidence of his apostleship is written upon the hearts of those converted. It says and is witnessed to by their renewed lives. Christ is formed within the hope of glory. A minister is greatly strengthened by these seals of his ministry. Acts of the Apostles 3.28. So therefore, we see that true evangelism by the grace of God, if it is followed through right, it should lead to also a sanctification experience of those who have come in so that they are becoming like Jesus. Are you following? This is the kind of work thus far that God would be pleased to pour out his spirit ultimately without measure. But now here's the thing. Notice that whenever God wanted to make a point clear to his people, it's interesting how he would do it. When God wanted to, to make the plan of salvation so clear to his people that by the grace of God, they would not miss it. God said, let them make me what? A sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25, 8. So God, it's like it's almost like when God wants to get certain points across of major efforts and events and things that he wants his people to experience and accomplish. God would always give us beautiful models. God says, all right, I'm going to give you the plan of salvation. I want to make it plain to you. Therefore, make me a sanctuary. And it is through the sanctuary that you'll understand the plan of salvation. When God the Father wanted to go ahead and allow Satan's concepts of him to be thwarted, God wanted to reveal himself to us. How did he do it? He did it through none other than Jesus. John 14, 9. You remember Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. Jesus is not the father, but his lifestyle, his ways, his character was a demonstration of his father's lifestyles, ways and characters. Amen. So if God wanted us to do evangelism, if God wanted us to do a soul saving work and if God wanted us to do all these things, would not God be consistent and once again give us a model? And you know what he did? You know who the model was? John the Baptist. 
When God wanted to bring a cross to the hearts and minds of his people. That he says, I want you to prepare the people for my coming. God says for my people in the last days, I'm going to make it simple for you. I'm going to give you a model. Of how you can go about doing soul saving work, soul winning work, so that by this model, you'll be able to learn some beautiful gems, some beautiful principles that if we follow it faithfully. God says. You'll know exactly how to finish the work. Now, did John finish his work in his day? Did John prepare the people for the coming of the Lord? And so it is. You'll find that when inspiration says this, it says the work of John the Baptist is our work. The Central Advance, April 8th, 1903. The work of John the Baptist is our work. Even in volume eight of the testimony to the church, page nine, it says, what is our work? The same as that given to John the Baptist. You see, God has called his church in these very last moments of earth's history to go ahead and do a tremendous work. It is a soul saving work. It is to reach those within. It is to reach those without. But at the same time, the problem is, is like the Israel of old, we gaze so much at different places. We get confused on what is the work and how do we do it? So we start picking up concepts, ideas and all these different things, strange things. And a lot of times we call this evangelism. And many of us are doing just like the Pharisees of old. We come past sea and land. We'll spend five thousand dollars on handbills, send it out in the neighborhood to every zip code. Then a couple of folks come in. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can make them twofold more the child's of hell, children of hell than themselves, than ourselves. So therefore, God knew I can't afford to make any mistakes. I must give them a model. And God says the model that I'm going to give them is none other than my faithful servant, who was the forerunner to prepare the world for the first advent. And his name was John the Baptist. And God says, if we understand his work carefully, you will know how to prepare the world for the second advent. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now, there are several things we could consider that time would not dare allow us. So therefore, I want to try to build on some very key points of things that we can consider as it relates to John's work. The first thing I want to look at was John's field. Who was John's field? Because every evangelist has a field that they need to work. Amen. And again, because John's work we find is very much harmonious with the work we're supposed to do, then we need to understand the field. If we can get an idea of the field, then we can know what we should be doing. Now, turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter three. Let's notice the field. Matthew, the third chapter. We're focusing on the field right now. Matthew, chapter three. In Matthew, the third chapter, let's notice what the Bible says as we consider John's field. The Bible says in Matthew chapter three, I want us to consider verses four to seven. Matthew chapter three, verses four to seven. Who was John's field? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this. It says. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. Notice that it was not just simply lay people that was John's field, but it was even leadership that was John's field. The Bible says that John would say even to Pharisees and Sadducees, repent. 
So therefore, that means that the same way John had a field where it was those within from the leadership to the laity. That means that in like manner, when we consider our work to do, because remember, are there sinners in the church? Yes, there are. So therefore, are there souls to be saved even in the church? Absolutely. Could those souls that need to be saved in the church, could they hold a position of leadership? Of course. And could they possibly be the laity? Absolutely. So therefore, we are to understand that it is not sacrilegious if we have to take somebody off of the path of error and bring them back on the straight and narrow, even if they hold the title pastor. Even if they hold the title evangelist. Even if they hold a high position, perhaps in one of our conferences. Everybody gets the same call. The same way that God has faithful individuals in all various forms of leadership in the church. And I do believe that. So I want to make that plain and I want to make that clear. I know that there are definitely a few thousand who have not bowed their knee to bail. And I believe many of them are going to be here this weekend. But at the same time, we know that, brothers and sisters, there's a large number of individuals who have been given heavy responsibility to feed the flock meat in due season. And unfortunately, the people are faint. So therefore, we see that John's message was a message. His field was those within from leadership to laity. Amen. But now let's go to Matthew chapter 21. Let's notice something else now. Matthew chapter 21. It's a nice balance. Matthew chapter 21. Now, I, I like this right here. I want, I want to build on a point right here. Matthew chapter 21. Now, Jesus was presenting a parable and he was, you know, talking about uh, you know, he gave a parable to the Jews and and how there was some who were obedient and some who were not. And who was the one that gave forth the best example? And ultimately, Jesus was seeking to make a point about John the Baptist. I'm skipping through those verses and bringing us right to verse 32, where Jesus hones in on the point of John the Baptist. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 32, it says, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But who? It says the publicans and the harlots believed him and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. So according to the Bible, who else made up John's field? Harlots and publicans. In fact, go to the book of Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter three, rather Luke three. Let's notice something else. Luke, the third chapter, his field even gets more broad. Luke chapter three, verses 12 to 16. In Luke chapter three. Verses 12 to 16, let's notice the even broader field than what we just saw between the publicans and the harlots. The Bible says in Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 12, it says, Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the who? And then soldiers. It says, And soldiers likewise demanded them, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Here it is that we see that John had a message that was to Pharisee and Sadducee and laity to also publicans, harlots, soldiers, and the list goes on. John had a work that was a work within as well as a work without. 
It was a balance work. And anytime you begin to hear individuals say, well, we just need to focus on the inside. There are some ministries today that are total in reach. Brothers and sisters, according to the model, that is not right. While we are definitely to give an attention to the inreach, while there is no doubt that the inreach is going through tremendous trials and therefore need a great amount of attention, we are not to neglect those outside. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I remember I was at a, a grocery short store. And when I was at this grocery store, I saw this lady and, you know, I was just getting some groceries like I normally do. And this sister had she had these growths just coming out of her face. I mean, it was one here and one here and one here. Now, typically, when we see people, we'll just kind of say, oh, you know, and we have our thoughts in our minds and we just walk away. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't do that. The spirit of the Lord arrested my attention and I had to go to that sister. And I literally went to that sister in almost the exact words of Jesus. And I just said, sister, do you want to get well? Because it was evident she was sick. I said, sis, do you want to get well? And you know what she said? She said, well, my doctor already said that I'm at stage four in my cancer. And there's not much hope for me. I said, sis, there's always hope if you trust in Jesus. And she was just like, well, I don't know. I don't know. And I did the best that I could to share Christ with her in those few moments while she was working her job. One week later, I came back. Guess what happened? She was dead. Came back. I said, where's Miss such and such? They said, oh, she died just a couple of days ago. Now, you know what? Her probation closed. The Bible makes it clear there is no repentance in the grave. Now, brothers and sisters, we have neighbors. We have bankers. We have all sorts of people that we see on a regular basis. And while we realize that there's a great crisis that's coming and brothers and sisters, it is great. And we're going to hear a lot about it throughout this weekend. We must understand that while it is true that when that final test comes to us, whatever decision we make is the final decision. But God never gave that to us to become a law to say, ignore all of those other peoples whose probation is closing on a daily basis. We have to understand there's a work within and there's a work without. We have to reach both. And this cannot be done by might nor by power, but only by God's spirit, saith the Lord. So while we see John's field, we also must consider John's motive. What was the motive of John's work? Because remember, John's work is our work. So at the same way John had a field, we have a field. The same way John had motives, we should have motives too. Amen? Amen. Now, notice what the Bible says as we consider Matthew chapter 3. Go back there with me now. What was John's motive? When we look at John's motive, let's notice what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 3. And let's consider this. Matthew chapter 3. Now, in Matthew 3, notice what it says right here in verse 3. In Matthew 3 and verse 3, the Bible says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, where did that come from? This voice of one crying in the wilderness. Was that a repetition of something in the Old Testament? Yes, it was. Now, watch this. Go to Isaiah 40, and let's look at something in Isaiah 40. Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Watch this now. What was John's motive? Notice what the Bible says, Isaiah chapter 40. And let's go ahead and let's consider verses one to three. You see, what was repeated 
was obviously in verse 3. But now we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. You see, if you look at verse 3 of Isaiah 40, if we just did, you know, line upon line, we would land at Isaiah 40, verse 3, where it says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a a highway for our God. But brothers and sisters, verses 1 and 2 are connected to verse 3. And look at what it says in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, it says, do what? Comfort. It says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. Now, and then verse three, of course, is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. When God told John to go to his people, it says, speak to them comfortably. The word comfortably in the Hebrew is speak to them with compassion. There was a compassion. In other words, John was not just simply trying to crack the whip and let a bunch of wicked sinners know that they're on their way to hell. That's the way a lot of people make John look. While John had a righteous indignation against sin, John was filled with compassion, and it was the compassion and love of Jesus that motivated him to tell the people the truth, though the heavens may fall. You know, we need a lot more people today with compassion. There are a lot of people today, brothers and sisters, that quite honestly, one of the reasons why they withhold so much truth from the people is because in truth, they don't love them. Even the Bible says that if you love your child, you chasten them. And if an individual does not chasten their child, it actually says we hate them. We must be moved with compassion. Do you know love will make you speak up when when nothing else would? It's actually the love of Jesus that made John stand up so clearly that even when he looked at Herod and Herod, he knew, you know what? If I point out Herod's sin and begin to show him that he's been sleeping with his brother's wife, I know that I'll lose my head. But the love of God constrains me. I have to tell him. And you know why John was able to do that? You know why John was able to so fearlessly go before a king, even though it might have cost him his head? Go to the book of First John, chapter four. Here's the reason why. The Bible says in First John, chapter four. I want you to see what the Bible says. Why was John so fearless that he would call sin by its right name, even if it meant the loss of his life? First John, chapter four. And notice what the Bible says. First John four. If you're there, say Amen. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, there is no what? Fear in love. It says for what happens? Perfect love casts out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. John actually loved Herod. And that's why he told Herod the truth. John actually loved those Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's why he told them the truth. You see, brothers and sisters, if you find that your ministry is based off of anger, bitterness and resentment, you're not called of God to go into work yet. You'll mess up the work. You need to plead with God. Give me the love of the shepherd and remove the spirit of the hireling. So that I may know how to tell the truth, as Ephesians says, in love. Now, the reason why this becomes very powerful to us is does not the Bible tell us something in First Corinthians 13? Now go there with me. First Corinthians, the 13th chapter. We're talking about motive. What's the motive of your work? We understand our field, but what's the motive of your work? First Corinthians chapter 13 now. In First Corinthians, the 13th chapter, this motive should be the reason for everything that we do in the name of ministry. The Bible says in First Corinthians chapter 13, 
The Bible says, starting at verse one, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that it is possible that we could be doing a great work and love is not the reason we do it? There are many ministries that are absolutely perverted because they're selfish motives. Good work, but bad motives. Now, notice this. I want you to think about this quotation. No matter how high the profession, it says he whose heart is not filled with love for God and his fellow men. Did you notice that? I know a lot of times people, they love to say, well, I do this because I love God. But wait a minute. You got to have a love for your fellow men. It says With love for God and his fellow men is not a true disciple of Christ. It says, though he should possess great faith and have power even to work miracles, yet without love, his faith would be worthless. Notice the next quotation. It says he might display great liberality, but should he from some other motive than genuine love bestow all his goods to feed the poor, the act would not commend him to the favor of God. Listen to this. In his zeal, he might even meet a martyr's death. Yet, if not actuated by love, he would be regarded by God as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. Acts of the Apostles 318. So therefore, if we're going to truly do the work as God has told us to do in preparation for this wonderful refreshing. Brothers and sisters, we must understand our field. We must understand the motive. And I'm going to give you this last one and we're going to pause here and then we'll pick back up on Sabbath morning when we do round two of this study. Now let's go ahead and let's take a look at one more thing. We're going to now look at John's message. This is one I was most excited about. I was trying to rush through the other points to get through it because I wanted to bring this out. There's some nice gems in here. Nice gems. The other ones were beautiful gems as well, but I want you to see something right here. John's message. Now, Matthew chapter 3. Go back there with me very quickly. In Matthew chapter 3, I like this because we're going to get some really good instruction. Instruction from the Lord. And remember, your field is within and without. There's so much entailed in this. Matthew chapter 3. Notice again what it says in verse 2. We read it before. We're just reading it again. John's message was this. What what was his message according to verse 2? It says, and saying do what? Repent ye. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So therefore, John was giving a message of repentance. Now, what are people repenting from? They're repenting from their sins. So that means that there must be a pointing out of sin. Amen? And that's why in Isaiah 58, it says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Now, the reason why this one becomes very important is because today there are many individuals that believe that when you give a message where it is a call to repentance, that it is not a message of love. There are some who interpret that the more that individuals are calling individuals to repent and turn from the evil of their ways, that people begin to say things like, you know what, that's not being very loving. I remember one time I was giving a message on repentance, and as I was giving it, the individual, and, and a brother came to me and he said, Brother Lemon, why do you always have to talk about repentance? He said, why can't you focus on the love of Jesus? 
I looked him in the eyes and I said, I thought I just did. And I was dead serious. I said, I thought I just did. He said, no, no, no. You kept pointing out sin and you're calling things out by its right name, like inspiration tells us to. And here it is that you keep doing that. Why can't you just talk about the love of Jesus? I said, let me ask you something. Do you think you can outlove Jesus? And he said, well, of course not. I said, do you know how Jesus loves? He said, well, I think so. And I said, well, let's know so. Go to the book of Revelation 3. Go to Revelation 3. Let's know. Why don't we know so? Revelation chapter 3. Notice what the Bible says. Now, no one can outlove Jesus. I'm going to let you know that right now. Jesus is God and God is love. But notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Jesus, as he's speaking to the church of the Laodiceans. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3. After God diagnoses the, 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 the clear symptoms of this sickness in verse 17. Thou sayest that I am rich and increase with good and have need of nothing. Here it is that this is a church, this is a group of people who think they're all right when they're all wrong. And God says, no, it's not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. And God begins to counsel them on what they can do to overcome the sickness. But then look at what he says now as we consider verse 19. It says, as many as I hate. Is that what it says? It says, as many as I love. What does Jesus say? I rebuke and chasten. Then he says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. I said the call to repentance is a demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ. That conversation ended right there. Brothers and sisters, John was calling the people to repentance. You see, while John had this message, I want you to look at this. There was a method connected to his message. And I want you to look at this. This this is the the final closing point we're going to put up here and then we'll close it out. Notice there was a method connected. The first thing John saw is it says he saw his people. Deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. Doesn't that sound like loud to see it? All right. It says he saw his people deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. He longed to rouse them to a holier life. It was John's desire to see the people partake of what he was partaking of, a holier life. Then it goes on to say, The message that God had given him to bear was designed to, what's that word? Startle them. It says from their lethargy and cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. Do you know that if more evangelists would follow this model, we would see far greater results in our evangelistic work, whether it be evangelism within or evangelism without. That's why It is imperative that we preach the gospel based on time. This is why we preach the gospel based on the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation in connection with the words, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When people understand time, they know exactly what to do. John would present messages to them that would literally strip them of every carnal security that people think they have today. Do you know there are people who actually think my bank account is going to keep me during the crisis? But then you begin to show them the economy and Bible prophecy and all of a sudden they say, well, that's gone. Another person says, well, my position and my prestige, this is what's going to keep me. And then you start showing them other points in the scripture where it shows very clearly that even people of your own household are going to turn against you, let alone your business and everything else. And strip and you strip and you strip. And what happens is John would startle them to the point that something would happen. Notice what it says. It says before the seed of the gospel could find lodgment, it says the soil of the heart must be broken up. 
before they would seek healing from Jesus, they must be awakened to their danger from the wounds of sin. This is why that call to repentance must be intermingled in the message. But now watch this. What would happen? God does not send messengers to flatter the sinner. He delivers no message of peace to lull the unsanctified into what kind of security? Fatal security. Don't let a man leave an evangelistic meeting. Don't let anybody leave a church where they think my bank account is going to take care of me. My job's secure or any of these other things. They must understand that all of these things are fatal securities if that's what they're going to try to trust in to get ready for these final events. That's going to take the majority of the people in this world as an overwhelming surprise. Strip the securities. Now, here's what happens. It says he lays heavy burdens upon the conscience of the wrongdoer and pierces the soul with arrows of conviction. This is evangelism. This is evangelism. It says, finally, I want you to think about this. You know this gentleman? Now, the only reason why I put him there, because I don't like to make displays of people like that. I, I don't do that. But what happens is this was public. This, this was on Fox News. So th- this was seriously public. All right. What happened was Joel Osteen was interviewed. And when he was interviewed, it says at the biggest church in the country, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, Pastor Joel Osteen preaches to some 25,000 people each week. And sin is not on the menu. So he makes it clear. He says, I don't like to touch this stuff. I don't want to deal with it. Look at what it says. He says, Osteen said his goal is to give people a boost for the week. That's his goal. And it's not just his goal. That's many evangelicals goals. That's even some 70 Adventist people's goals. It says, I think for years there's been a lot of hellfire and damnation. You go to church to figure out what you're doing wrong and you leave feeling bad like you're not going to make it. Osteen said, we believe in focusing on what? The goodness of God. Now, you know, I, you know, I chuckled when I read that. You know why? Does the goodness of God have a direction? Go to the book of Romans chapter two. Let's find out the direction. Because remember, he made it clear sin's not on the menu. I don't want to talk about sin. So therefore, he doesn't talk about repentance because the only thing to repent from is sin. But he says he wants to focus on the goodness of God. But does the Bible show us the direction of the goodness of God and where it leads? Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter two and verse four. The Bible says in Romans 2 and verse 4, let's notice what the scripture says. If you're there, please say amen. amen. Now, here's what the Bible says. Romans 2 and verse 4. Notice. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to what? Repentance. Repentance. Somehow he seemed to have missed that point. God says the call to repentance is the message of the hour. And you know what, brothers and sisters? It says the ministering angels. This is concluding that quotation we're reading from uh, about John and how he, he ministered to the people. It says the ministering angels present to him. That's the individual hearing the message from the deliverer. It says the ministering angels present to him the fearful judgments of God to deepen the sense of need and prompt the cry. What must I do to be saved? You see, if you take away all of the carnal securities, then guess what? That person doesn't feel secure anymore. And everybody wants salvation. It's just that they have their own methods of getting it. So when the carnal and the fatal securities are stripped away, then it prompts the cry. Well, then what do I do now? And so it says, then 
The hand that has humbled in the dust lifts up the penitent, the voice that has rebuked sin and put to shame pride and ambition inquires with the tenderest sympathy, what wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? The messages that God has given to us, brothers and sisters, God says, I've given them a sanctuary message. We are to understand that thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. It is when we begin to give the sanctuary, when it is rightly understood, rightly preached, rightly taught and lived. That it will cause an individual to begin to search their heart and they will start being stripped of their fatal securities. After the sanctuary, you know that it's going to lead to the study of the books of Daniel and Revelation. Because it is the understanding of Daniel and the revelation in connection with the sanctuary that brings us to present truth. Yea, it brings us even to the first, the second and the third angel's message. And brothers and sisters, this is the message of the hour. This is the message that God has given to us that is designed to do the very work. If rightly received and rightly understood. That will give us the results that God is so longing and waiting for to be done in his church as well as in the world. What is that? It's a cleaver, very good. And you use a cleaver to cut, is that right? And it makes sharp cuts. Did you know that God says, God has called his church in this day as he called ancient Israel to stand as a light in the earth. It says, by the mighty cleaver of truth. It says the messages of the first, second, and third angels, he has separated them from the churches and from the world to bring them into a sacred nearness to himself. It says he has made them the depositaries of his law and has committed to them the great truths of prophecy for this time. Like the holy oracles committed to ancient Israel, these are a sacred trust to be communicated to the world. We will stop here and we'll prepare our hearts to pick back up on Sabbath morning. We're not just going to, we're going to continue to look at John's message, John's method. But you know, what we're going to especially look at on Sabbath. We're going to look at John's life. Because you're going to find that one of the secrets that made John's message so powerful was the life that he lived. And you'll find that what's going to make our message so powerful is by the lives that we lived. But it starts, brothers and sisters, with making sure that we truly realize that if my work is not in line with the model that God has given to us. Then I must make sure that I relinquish whatever is not in God's order and do it as he instructed us to do it. I believe, brothers and sisters, God wants to pour out his spirit, but we have to be in the place and the experience and the work to receive it. The same way there will be no last minute righteousness at the coming crisis. There's not going to be any last minute evangelism. You must learn how to do soul winning work now and do it in God's order. And so if you realize, you know what, I have not taken my role personally. You know, there's a rule that's said in business that says 80 percent of the work is done by 20 percent of the people. And so it is that we find that it's unfortunately the same reality in the church today. Eighty percent of the work is only done by 20% of the people. Why? Because individuals do not understand their personal responsibility. And brothers and sisters, you and I must understand that God says there's an experience he's reserving just for you when you begin to work as John worked. And so if you realize tonight, I haven't been working like John worked. 
I have not been in line with what God has counseled and instructed on how I am to play my role personally. But by the grace of God, beginning tonight, I will fall in line with Jesus and I will cooperate with him so that I may do the work as he instructed me to do so that I may, by the grace of God, finish the work and lighten the earth with his glory. If that's your desire, would you stand with me? And as you stand, know that Christ stands with you. Know that Jesus will walk with you. He's going to enable you because all of his biddings are his enablings. What we must do is just make sure that our hearts and our lives are in line with God and his truth and his principles. Stick to the model, brothers and sisters, and you'll find tremendous, beautiful things from the word of God in your own hearts, in your own home, in your own church, and in this world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, dear God, for the precious truths that you have made known to our heart. We thank you for truth as it is in Jesus. And Lord, there is so much more that we could discuss as we look at this model of John's work being our work. But Father, I pray just the few gems that we received in this short period of time, may it have an indelible impression upon our minds and hearts that we will be determined to cooperate with heaven so that you may finish your work within us so that we may finish the work in this world. Abide with us, dear God, and thank you for hearing our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.